Hey everyone, if you love ice cream as much as I do, you need to hear about my particular favorite, Magnum Ice Cream. They are the best at pairing decadent chocolate with velvety ice cream, and recently, the incredible team, Extraordinaries, there came out with a new flavor featuring the recently discovered Cacao Ruby. Ruby is the first chocolate variant in 80 years and has a little bit of a berry flavor and it's delicious. And they came in cute mini sizes, which makes them perfect for sharing with your loved ones. So next time you go out and get ice cream, definitely get a Magnum ice cream bar and try the new Magnum Ruby minis. Yum. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi everyone, it's Rebecca. You're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is Lee Gallagher. I met Lee when she was at Fortune's Most Powerful Women with Patty Sellers. I think I did her podcast. She is an incredible editor, writer, interviewer. Um, since this interview, she's actually left and gone to Google with an incredible position there. Um, but we talk a lot about women, media, what it's like to work for a company like she did, and more. I am joined today with Lee Gallagher, the senior editor at large for Fortune. So thank you for being here with me. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. It's great to be here. And before we get started, because most people don't know what at large means, what does at large mean? At large. It doesn't sound, sound very <laughs> good, does it? Um, it basically is sort of like a like a um, senior editor at large. It's kind of a roaming role, I guess. It's a title that we give um, or editor at large to people who write, um, are kind of part of the editorial team, maybe have a little bit more flexibility to sort of pick and choose the stories they want to do. Um, in my case, it's a little bit more of a catch-all because I wear a lot of different hats at Fortune. I spend a lot of my time on our conferences, in particular, our Most Powerful Women's Summit and summits around that. I write, I edit, I go on air a lot. I do a lot, a weird kind of basket of things, so it kind of like catches everything. I love it. It's like a multi-hyphenate. It kind of is. Yeah. yeah. Which is media these days, I think. Totally. That's my role these days, right? Exactly. Designer, podcaster. Exactly. <laughs> I'd love for you to start with your career path and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. So, um, so my mother always told me when I was growing up, do what you love, the money will follow. And that was really ingrained to me into me at a very early age. And um, I guess I really got bitten by the journalism bug. Journalism is not something that you ever pursue for the money. You pursue it. It's really a labor of love. And if you fall for it, you fall for it pretty hard. And it's a wonderful profession. And in ninth grade, I took a class, uh, a journalism class with Mrs. Stanfield in my high school. And I will never forget the first time I learned about the inverted pyramid, which is basically the kind of basic um, rules for story structure. You put the most important thing at the top and then you kind of go down from there in a, in a traditional news newspaper article. And I just loved it. I just thought, my God, you can kind of find cool stuff out and tell it to people and that could be your job. And from then I was hooked and I never really considered anything else. But breaking into journalism is really hard. And I was not a, I didn't go to journalism school. I went to um, college. I wrote for the paper, among a bunch of other things. I was never one of these people that was there until two in the morning, but I just like to write these occasional feature stories about really interesting topics. And um, from there, I um, got an internship at 
uh, Philadelphia Magazine, which is where I'm from, which was unpaid, but I loved it. And then I ended up moving to New York and looking for journalism jobs there. But I didn't really have any connections. And I, I didn't really understand uh, if I could do my career over again, I would really hit myself on the head and say, you know, you really just just find a connection that really does open the door. I thought, well, gosh, I'm, I think I'm pretty good. I, if I just go through the front door, I'm sure someone will hire me. And somebody did eventually, but I probably would have saved a lot of time if I was a little more strategic about that. Um, I would go to the um, newsstand on Saturday nights when the New York Times would come out. I'm dating myself here, but you'd look through the classified ads. And I got my first journalism job, paying job at a magazine called Sporting Goods Business. And I was hired to be the footwear reporter. So that was my job. It was a little bit about business, but I didn't know anything about business. I, all I wanted to be was a journalist. And the first time I started calling all these companies and getting to know them, when you work a beat, you have to just introduce yourself and have conversations. And they all kept mentioning the same acronym. And I was thinking, why are they all using these same three letters? What does this mean? And it was IPO. I didn't even know what an IPO was. And from there, that sort of set me off on the business journalism path, which is something I never foresaw myself going down, but something I really love. I find the business conversation fascinating, especially with women. And something that you guys have done with the Most Powerful Women Summit is really highlight and showcase incredible game changers uh, within the business world. But I'm curious because you cover so many of these women and there are so little of us, let's say, or as many as there need to be. What do you see or notice most that's not working that we're not able to get more equal numbers or why women, if they leave a high level role, are not replaced with more women? That's your- a really good question. So as far as women have come, we still, as you say, have a very long way to go. The percentage of Fortune 500 CEOs who are women is a paltry uh, six and change percent, uh, maybe be less than that based on the most recent numbers. But, and, you know, the, the women in executive positions is is very small, women on boards. There's an incredible awareness now, uh, even before the Me Too movement struck, there was an incredible awareness that the world needs more women leaders but it's not something that can change overnight. And I think there's a lot of reasons. I think men are still still hold most, most of the positions of power. You know, a lot of people will say it's a pipeline problem when we need to fill this position while well, we want the best person. The best person may be a man. I think there's increasing recognition that that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable to just say we tried, we couldn't. Melody Hobson has a great quote. She quotes her husband, George Lucas, who quotes Yoda saying, there is no try. You either do or you do not. She applies that to um, whether it's um, issues of race or issues of gender. You know, there's no excuse for not having the right number, having women in, in equal numbers. You just have to try harder. So, but I, I think it's hard. I think there's a lot in the the science about how men and women behave differently Men tend to go for things with less hesitation, with more confidence, even if they're not as prepared or not as qualified. Women are much more thoughtful and, you know, want to make sure they dot all the I's and cross the T's. It sounds like I'm stereotyping, but there is research behind all this. But I think there's an increasing just recognition that this is really important and and more people are trying to elevate women across the board. So I was talking with Dee Poku yesterday and she was like, mirroring what you said, there is a lot of awareness. There's a lot of people talking about it, but at the top it's decreasing, let's say 6%, maybe less now. So with Fortune's Most Powerful, what do you think are lessons that we can either share with our listeners or what you've learned about, like, what is that flip the switch, you know, so it doesn't take a generation um, that you think we could all be more aware of or do differently to, to be more aggressive or to 
you know, act when not asked. Well, I think it's, I think it's everything big and small. It's put yourself forward for jobs. Even if you think you might not be a hundred percent qualified for them, just go for it. Just think about those men. Think about the way you've seen men behave. You know, I mean, Sheryl Sandberg and Lean In has a great colorful anecdote that stays in my mind all the time. And it's a study that shows, or, or maybe it was just an anecdote she told, I can't remember, but, um, you know, at the end of a class, when, when wh- whoever's speaking says, okay, I'll take one more question, you know, after that one question, all the women's hands go down and all the men's hands stay up. And so just think about that. And, you know, you don't get what you don't ask for. And I think that that's really important. I also think mentoring is really important. I think women in positions of power have a real responsibility to uh, bring up um, women you know, beneath them and elevate them and um, see their careers rise. I think that's really important. I think that men play a huge part of the uh, equation. I think it's really important. You know, we're hearing a lot about men being shot, afraid or scared off of mentoring women because of the whole Me Too movement. And I think that's absolutely terrible because, you know, men hold most positions of power now. Men have the ability to bring women up bring, and men. And if that stops being the case, that's going to be a real problem. So I think it's important for women to find communities also. I mean, the most powerful women community is just that. And it's an incredible place for these women to come together and just sort of be among their peers and share best practices and, you know, network and get job opportunities just like men would do at conferences. But um, it it is also just a a nice place for these women to sort of be among each other and and have a safe place to kind of come and, and... network, but do sort of more, more than that. We see a little bit more than that, a little bit more than what you might see at a men's conference. I'd love for you to share um, something that really touched you that happened at the conference. You know, sometimes I do these fireside chats and someone comes up to me and is like, because of you, I quit my job. And now I asked for a raise or, you know, I'm always like, yes, it's worth it. So have you, what would be your worth it moment? That's hard. I mean, we hear, we hear all the time that women get job opportunities um, through the summit or um, they may be weighing something and they come there and they have a conversation and it convinces them. Someone says, no, you really should go for it. We hear that over and over. I remember once I moderated a panel there about negotiating and um, we had this wonderful negotiation expert, Vicki Medvek. It was a packed room, which isn't so surprising. But what was really surprising to me was that there were a few Fortune 500 CEOs in the room. And you just think, my gosh, these women, they, surely they know how to negotiate, but even even they want help. Even they want you know, and, and they were raising their hands and asking questions and everything like that. And so I think one of the things that struck me about about being among all these most powerful women is that they really are just like you and me. I mean, we have this impression that these are superheroes or or they're just, um, oh, I'm never going to be one of, I'm never going to be a CEO. Maybe I'll grow to a certain level, but I surely I can't be a Fortune 500 CEO or whatever your dream is, an entrepreneur found an incredible company. But really, you know, these women all have struggles also. They don't know everything. They don't have all the answers. And um, that's been a big lesson for me. Totally. I think we put these people up on pedestals for success. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, I could never be that or or they're perfect all the time. So mm-hmm. I think it's always great to hear that like we all are struggling mm-hmm. with something. And don't get me wrong. They are, I mean, many of them, they're badasses. I mean, totally. they are ballers. Just because you're struggling, you can be both. You can be <laughs> struggling and be a badass. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I'd love to switch gears and talk about the books that you've written. Sure. What inspired you to write that first book and sort of that maybe it wasn't scary because you were already a writer, but was it, were there challenges, you know, that were different than writing an article or interviewing somebody that you can share? Yeah. Books are very different. I really, really like writing books. I learned that about myself during during that process. Um, So my first book was a book called The End of the Suburbs, Where the American Dream is Moving. And one of the things that I love most about being a journalist is 
just kind of identifying trends or movements or big sort of shifts in the zeitgeist. And because I'm a business reporter, I like it when they're especially rooted in economic data. Um, And so it was after the financial crisis, I was doing some research and stumbled upon some interesting data that showed that for the first time in many years, the rate of population growth in cities outpaced that in suburbs. And it just got me thinking, I, I, you know, the suburb, the American suburbs are just this iconic, you know, talk about the zeitgeist. They represent this sort of pillar of American culture. And just looking at that data and just things that I, I just know from the people I know, my friends, my just watching kind of the, the way people live, reading newspapers, you could just tell that there was a movement, you know, cities were resplendent and coming back. And I just thought, let me look into this a little bit. What's happening to the American suburbs? And I, it, every, every kind of stone I turned under yielded this like incredibly powerful data that just showed that, wow, we're in the middle of this big shift. And again, I just loved what it meant sort of culturally and for kind of just, you know, I keep using the word zeitgeist. So I was able to write a book on that topic, but I didn't know much more than that. I was not an expert. You know, sometimes you write a book about something you're already an expert in or something that you've already written a 10-page feature on and you have a running start. I literally, you know, found this stat, thought it was cool, found some other stats and just jumped in and I think I over-researched it as a result because I was a little insecure that I was not like an urbanist, but it was a really, really great process. And I ended up writing a lot about the town I grew up in. And it's funny, I really, urbanism is something that I didn't know anything about before. Most people don't. But once you learn a little bit about it, you it changes the way you look at your environment. You walk down a street, you think about how was the street built and why? And why is this, does this um, neighborhood feel good when I walk into, into it? And why does this neighborhood feel empty and isolated? And it was really a fascinating education. And I really, it was a, that book, you know, it's like maybe like your first child. I don't know. It has a special place in my heart and always will. I would love for you to talk about what that felt like when it was published and out there for the uh, world to consume. Did you have, were you nervous? Were you like, is anyone going to read this or, you Yeah, know? it's really scary because you, you work so hard on something and then it launches out into the world. And um, also the whole, everybody tells you this when you write a book, like, oh, you think the writing's hard. Wait till you get to the marketing of it because there's just so much you can do and you always feel like you're not doing enough. And um, it's very stressful. And, um, but it, at the same time, it was really, really fun and exhilarating. I had a friend tell me, you know, whatever you expect is going to happen when you publish a book is not going to happen, but some things are going to happen that you are not going to expect at all. So just kind of just be open to everything. And, um, and that was true. I mean, I had a really fun book party and it's funny, my second book, I didn't, I had a book party, but it just, there's nothing like the first one. And, um, and it was great. And again, I really passionately believed in this idea and I had poured my um, heart and so many hours into it. The hours are not, you know, I learned a lot about productivity during this process because books are really an exercise in organization and productivity almost more than anything else, I think. So, um, so it was great. And then I got, it's really exhilarating when people want you to come on air and talk about your book or go and speak about your book. It's really, um, a wonderfully rewarding and privileged, um, place to be in. So it was really great. And then you came back with another one about Airbnb. I did, yeah. One of my favorite apps <laughs> yeah. on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Very different topic. A little connected in that they're both kind of these sort of social movements in a way and these big trends that just sort of caught on. Uh, but Airbnb, I had I had written about, I'd interviewed Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, at one of our Fortune conferences in 2012. And when I first heard about Airbnb, I, was, I rolled my eyes. I run our 40 under 40 at Fortune, and people are always coming to me breathless each year with, oh, this new entrepreneur, that new entrepreneur. And I, when I first heard about that, like a lot of people, I was like, oh, there's already other VRBO and home away. How is this different? Well, by the time I got to interview Brian, I, d- I ended up doing some research for that. And I saw how the numbers were just growing like crazy, really just exceptionally. And I thought, okay, there's something here. The consumer loves this. Let me sort of dig, dig in and find out why. 
And then I ended up writing a feature about him, about Brian and his process of learning how to be a leader because um, he had no business business experience, uh, didn't know what a slide deck was, didn't know what angel investors were, and yet kind of had stayed running this company. He rented out his mattress, right, for some yes. festival. Yes. The story yes. is he and his one of the co-founders, Joe Gebbia, they needed to make their rent in San Francisco. They were two grads of RISD. They were unemployed. And... Um, Joe said, listen, I have three air mattresses in um, in the closet. Why don't we, there was a big design conference coming to town and all the hotels were either sold out or over $400 a night. And they were designers themselves and they knew that people couldn't pay that that rate. And they said, why don't we offer 80, 85 bucks a night? We'll give them breakfast. We'll show them the city. We'll make it a whole thing and we'll call it air bed and breakfast. And they thought they were going to get hippie backpacker types because at the time there was couch surfing and that was free and kind of this collective. And they ended up getting three people from all walks of life, but they were kind of just like them. They were designers looking for a reasonable place to stay. And um, from there, they began the process of getting it off the ground, which was a very long, tortuous process because everybody thought it was a terrible idea. Everybody. Uh, nobody would invest in them. They were trying to sell 10% of the company for $150,000. Wow. And that's now worth $3.1 billion. And nobody, nobody, people said, I hope you have another idea. I hope this isn't the only thing you're working on. So it was just this kind of classic entrepreneurial rags to riches against all odds story of hustle and determination. And then later, a story of incredible controversy. Lots of things went wrong, lots of pushback. Still, even still, this company is facing a lot of headwinds. But even so, it's become this consumer sensation. So that was a very different book to write, but it was so much fun to write that book. I mean, every day, just writing that rollicking, crazy story was just pure fun. Wow. And how long did that process take? Well, that one took not as long <laughs> as I would have liked. So publishers oftentimes, they love your idea, but they want it now. They want it immediately. And uh, the first book I took actually took two years, but it was mostly doing it on weekends. This book I did in less than six months, I think. And I took some time off of work. I took a three-month book leave. It was very quick. And then the whole thing, came. the book came out basically a year after I got the deal to do it. So it was very quick. I would argue every author is always going to say that if they only had more time, it would have been better. I'm very proud of the book. I think it's, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it, but I, you always want more time. Totally. <laughs> do you ever get writer's block and what do you do to overcome it? Oh my God. Good question. Yes. Yes. Writer's block is t as terrible as they say. <laughs> it's the worst. Writing is so, it, it, it's, it's agonizing. There's nothing worse than staring at a blank screen. You know, I've been an editor as well, and editing is is just, it's got different challenges, but it, there's nothing like sitting and looking at that blank screen. So, but for me, I really believe in the whole theory of a journey of a thousand, 10,000 miles begins with a single step. And so you just break the big, large project, writing a book down into small chunks, chapters, sections. At some point I would even do, okay, today I'm going to write these three paragraphs. And then, you know, then your work is cut out for you. And um, you, because sometimes those three paragraphs take a lot of research, you're researching at the same time. So it might take longer than it sounds to write three paragraphs, but um, that was a real, you know, tactic of mine. Another thing is I don't write well when I'm, when I feel like I'm late and I'm under the gun. So I was very disciplined. I need to feel like I have many hours in front of me to relax into those hours. And then that way I feel a lot less pressure. So as long as you can, it's a luxury to be able to have all that time. But I find that when I'm writing under unstressed conditions, it's a it's a completely different thing. And then getting a lot of sleep. I have this weird thing about noise. I cannot I have to write in total silence. And sometimes that's not so easy. So I spent a lot of time that summer when I was on book leave. I rented a space in a in a writing or a co-working space, but it was not silent. And so I um, got to know Spotify's white noise playlist very, very well. 
I mean, white noise, purple noise, brown. There's all these playlists like of static. Pink noise. pink noise. Pink noise is great. It oh makes me gosh. so happy. It does. <laughs> these things are my, I, I could not, and now I use them in the office all the time. Right. But I was also, sometimes they have some that have a little bit of birds chirping and ocean waves. And so I was not having a summer that summer. I felt very bad for myself. I was not going anywhere. So I thought I'm having summer in my ears a little bit. Yeah. I'm trying to push this book out. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure it's very different when you are approaching a book versus an interview versus um, writing for the magazine. How do you sort of get into those different headspaces and approaches for each one? Yeah, well, you need to do research for each one. And I'm a big over-preparer, probably maybe too much. Um, For our live events for the Most Powerful Women Summit, we're talking about 15-minute conversations. Um, But, you know, I put a lot of prep into those conversations because it's very, very hard to have a substantial conversation in that kind of time limit. So, um, but you do prepare a lot differently when you're preparing for an interview, a live interview, you're, you're, you're reading the material, you're looking for, you know, what are the buckets? What are the five buckets I want to cover in this conversation? And then you think about how to ask the questions. And then you think about if there's anything hard you want to ask about, that's not easy. How am I going to phrase that? And, um, you know, you have to be a little sensitive, but you want to make sure you're covering everything that your audience is going to want to hear. You are really, um, a vehicle for the audience. So, you know, when sometimes people try to push back and say, well, we really don't want to talk about this. You have to say, we're, we're serving our audience and they're going to want to hear about this from you. So you don't have to, you can get declined to answer after I ask you, but I'm going to ask you. So I want to go there because I remember hearing you and Patty ask very uncomfortable questions at the last summit. And I was like, yes, where does that ballsiness or gall come from? Or maybe it doesn't, because you know, you're serving your audience, it's not scary, but where do you sort of find that it's hard. It's hard. I wouldn't say I'm the best at it. I I, I don't find that particularly easy. Right. Um, but it's part about, it, it's about being a journalist and it's about, there's also a really, there's a way to ask questions that is not uh, hard questions. That's not gotcha or putting the other person off. There's a, one of the legendary, amazing writers at Fortune, Carol Loomis, had a great way of asking hard questions. And she just would phrase it like, you know, just playing devil's advocate. Some might say that X or um, you know, your critics have said that, you know, she just had a wonderful way of doing it in her very kind and respectful way. And I think that goes a long way. Yeah. And, and then re- you also don't want to do it immediately. You don't want to sit down and immediately ask the hard question. You want to ask a couple to get the person warmed up because it really, it's a, it's a chemistry thing that's happening on stage. A live interview is much different than interviewing someone and taking your notes and then going and putting it in a print article or a web article. It's very different. I'd love to also talk about research. I know what I think research is, right? When I'm researching who I'm going to have on the podcast and the questions we're going to ask. Um, Obviously, as a journalist and as an author, your research has to be a lot deeper, I would say. I would go so venture to say, how do you do your research? You don't have to give away all your trade secrets, but where, where do you sort of start that that journey. Well, I mean, you probably do pretty thorough research before you're having someone in. It's probably not as different as you think from what you do. Um, let me just think of an example. I mean, I wrote an article earlier this year on the role of the COO and why it's always um, in the tech world seems to be a woman these days and what that means. Does that mean that this is going to be a perpetual number two and these women are never going to be CEO? Does this mean that these are women are good multitaskers? What? Why the trend? So to research that, I... Um, first needed to find a bunch of female COOs. So I made this huge list. And, you know, I mean, it used to be, we used to use databases like Factiva and LexisNexis, and we still do use those. But, you know, Google will get you so many places that, you know, it'll get you to those same articles usually. We do have a library that will always ask to do clip searches. 
that's usually where I start. Um, you want to see, I want to see everything that's been written about a particular topic. I'm exhaustive. I, I just, I'd rather see more than less. I don't want to miss anything. Um, and then you also want to make sure that no one else has sort of put forth the same idea as you in, in, in a story like that, that's really ideas based. And then from there, what, if I had an interview with someone, I interviewed, I don't know, 10 or 15 of these COOs and you just do research on, on all of them. And uh, I would just read whatever I could find. I mean, and then just, it just sinks into your brain. I keep copious notes. And when I'm reading, I take notes. Somehow it forms the, helps form the questions. It sort of can't really see it. It just is this like organic nebulous process, but you're just like absorbing all right. this information. Right. And so you um, have the keys to the four, uh, 40 under 40. Mm-hmm. You have the keys to 40 under 40. <laughs> the keys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, what is that process like? How do you find this talent? And yes. Yeah. So the Fortune 40 under 40, it was a list that was done many, many years ago by um, a former colleague of mine, Dan Roth. At the time, it was a list based only on wealth. This was during the first dot-com boom. And the question was, who's the richest under 40? And it was a great list every year. And you look at it now and it was names. I mean, Michael Dell was under 40 at the time. Um, I mean, there were so many people. It was Jerry Yang, the, you know, Yahoo. It's like a walkthrough business history to go back and look at that list. So in 2009, right after the financial crisis, 2008, I guess, I thought, I started to notice that a lot of young people were pulling pretty powerful levers behind the scenes in the financial crisis, whether it was Meredith Whitney at the time, who made the bold call in Citigroup and tanked it and just became this, you know, um, very well-known financial analyst from that. There was somebody on the auto task force who was very young and just all these, it just got me the idea, why don't we bring this list back, this 40 under 40 brand, but let's make it a list instead of money about power and influence, because that had sort of superseded money in terms of what people really cared about. And so we just put a big team together and I try to give everybody, you know, a certain industry to be responsible for. And people just come back. I say, go shake the trees, come back with ideas. And some people we know are going to be on, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, um, is usually on the list. He's usually pretty high at the top. But, you know, we really try very hard to to put new names. We really want it to be a list of kind of discovery that you can read through these bios and be really blown away by somebody you may never have heard of, but who is doing something incredibly powerful and influential. And that can be one of the great things about not having it be about money is that you can have people from nonprofits, you can have people from government. You know, it's not it's not um, necessarily about wealth or or, you know, salary or anything like that. And now as a woman and as a proponent of women, do you sort of ask the team or do you try and make the list more equal? So if it's 20 and 20 or even representative of minorities, do you yeah. like go into it with that filter these we days? We do. We do. And I'll, I'll to, I will say, I used to take a very, I used to say, no, this has to be merit. You know, I don't, I don't want deliberate, you know, quotas. This is like 10 years ago. I really used to think this way. And obviously I've evolved. It just, you know, I don't, I don't, but I want to be careful. Our job is not to make business look better than it is. You know, if we were to make that list look 50-50, business is, business sucks because it's not 50-50 and I don't want to make it look good. I don't want to whitewash it, the truth. So we kind of, you, know, you have to kind of balance that, but you also want to really search high and low to find great women doing great things because um, it's really important to put great women on the list and and people from all backgrounds. So we do try really, really hard to do that. And But one side effect of, of that is it, it's, it becomes very hard for white men. You know, we get so many pitches. I don't and, feel bad for them. No, of course <laughs> not. But it really, it it is... It is very hard, especially because we get pitched so many different new tech startups every year. And they're all, you know, a lot of them are founded by men. And it's just, you know, we cannot, 
you know, we have to say no to some men who might have founded a business that by valuation may be bigger than the a woman we're considering, but you, know, you factor in. It's it's harder to do that. It's harder to raise that money as a woman. It's harder to get that business off the ground as a woman, you know, especially if it's like in AI or biotech or something. And so, you know, we really factor all that into account. And as a result, we call them, I call them WMTs, white men in tech. <laughs> <laughs> it's harder for them. Sorry. Right. <laughs> So if there was a common trait of leadership or skill that you see across year after year of these 40 under 40, is there something that you can say that these people excel because we they all have this X factor? And what do you think you could say that is? Well, so? I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but they're all very driven. But it's funny. We have a lot of, um, the list is really a mix of entrepreneur founders. Those people are very different from, we have a lot of big company executives. Uh, we have you know, nonprofit or academics, and they're all a little different. But we give everyone this questionnaire every year. I don't know if we did this when you were on the list. Um, I was on the list in 2014. 2014 everybody. An alumni, so she's part of the community. <laughs> and we do try not to repeat people. So that's why explains why someone might be on in 2014, and then their business grows, and then they're not on again. So it, it's kind of a funny thing, but we consider someone to be sort of in the club. So um, we do ask everyone the same set of, it's about 16 questions and it's everything from where was your last vacation to what's your productivity tip and what's your, you know, what's your biggest regret, you know, all, all sorts of questions. And people's personalities really come out. The, it's almost the main reason I like to do these questionnaires because some people come back and they have such fun with it and they're funny and they're their real selves. And then some people are a little bit more serious and straight laced. And, you know, you sort of see the differences in personalities there. I would say the entrepreneurs are a little more kind of freewheeling than the academics or the big company executives. Okay, that's good to know. Mm -hmm. And that's for men and women across the board, I think. Okay. Yeah. So what would be something that people would be surprised to know about you? I don't know. I was in marching band in high school. I twirled a <laughs> rifle. I played <laughs> flute and piccolo. I was a big marching band. I don't want to say geek because in my high school, they were not geeks, but it was a big part of my life. I love that. <laughs> uh, so one of the things I end all of the podcasts with is um, I want you know, the people listening to come away with actionable advice that they can hopefully change their day or their week with. Um, so any last words of advice you'd like to leave our listeners with? Sure. I would say just put yourself forward. I need to do this more than anyone. I mean, I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anyone, but I just think put yourself forward, ask for what you want. This is what we see women not doing all the time. It's really important. And then one thing that I've just learned from my career, I mean, one of the reasons I'm a journalist is I'm, I'm, I'm curious about everything. You know, I ask a lot of questions, and I think that's a really good quality for anyone, even if you're not a journalist. People tend to, you know, if you're going in for a job interview and you ask questions or you do your research beforehand and you say, oh, I read that you went to X college or I read that, oh, that you cook a lot on the side or anything like that, the person's going to be impressed. And um, it just, it serves you well in so many aspects of your life. And so I just think curiosity is something that's really underappreciated and really important. Awesome. Lee Gallagher, thank you so much. Thanks, Rebecca. That was Lee. I hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to rate, review us. So if you go to anchor.fm forward slash superwomen forward slash messages, you can leave me a voicemail. How cool is that? Today's review is from at Nicole Kruger. I'm absolutely in love with this podcast. I've binge listened to all episodes in the last week and have told countless friends they need to do the same. I'm encouraging my 16-year-old daughter to listen too. There is so much inspiration and empowerment. Thank you for putting such positivity and value into the world. Incredible. Thank you, Nicole, for the awesome, kind words. 